Welcome, and thanks for joining us at the Central Baptist Victoria podcast. Today, as we continue our series on questions Jesus asked, our desire is to be challenged by his teaching and changed more into his likeness. Now, here's today's message. Good morning. The scripture reading today is Mark 10, verses 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after, after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, John. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to Central Baptist Church. And if you're new here, my name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it's my pleasure to bring the word to you this morning. Throughout this summer, most of this summer, we've been going through a series that we've been calling Questions Jesus Asked. And uh, we've completed so far five questions. We have three more to go. So, folks, it's time for our midterm quiz this morning. Well, let's do a little review at least. We have been noticing, uh, or let, let me remind you of our desire and our goal in this, perp- in this series of messages. As we've been looking at Jesus' strategic use of questions in his teaching style, we've been particularly desiring at, to enter into the life of Jesus. What we want to do is sit at the feet of Jesus to hear carefully and slowly the words that he is speaking, the questions that he is asking. And we're doing that really in order that we may grow in three areas of our lives. Do you remember what they are? We want to first of all have the teaching of Jesus affect our thinking. We want to learn from his teaching. We want to learn how to think well. 
But we also don't just want this to be a cerebral exercise as we sit and we observe Jesus and we, we see him in all his beauty and as he's, as he's talking and asking questions, we want to be enthralled by his wisdom. And so we want to grow in worship. So we're not just growing in our thinking, but we're growing in our worship. We're becoming more and more worshipers of Jesus throughout this series. But it's also our desire not only that we think well and we worship well, but we desire that the Holy Spirit of God would do something in us, that the Holy Spirit of God would change us as we learn how to respond to his words so that we would become more and more like Jesus, so that we would live well. We want to think well. We want to worship well. We, want, we desire to live well. Back in the middle of July, we began this series by worshiping Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. It's quite a remarkable experience, wasn't it? We see Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in the temple, and his parents are frantically looking for him, and he responds to their frantic search by, by declaring who he is with this question. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house Jesus there as a 12-year-old boy is displaying, displaying this amazing sense of having come from God to earth for a very special purpose. And yet we see him going on and living in submission to his parents as he grew up. Another Sunday, a few Sundays ago, when Pastor Kevin was here, a former pastor at this church, he led us into this story where Jesus asks a very pointed question about how we look at other people, how we look at the people around us, specifically and how we sometimes think ourselves superior or judge others. And Jesus uses what is really a pretty hilarious question when we think of it literally. It's hyperbole. He says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own eye? The next week, while well, the next following three weeks, Scott was challenging us with three questions. The first one was, what is your reward if you only love the people who love you? This challenging truth of the kingdom of God that is about loving enemies, and it really is right at the center of the gospel story is that Jesus came and loved us while we were enemies, right? And so he calls us to love even our enemies. And the next week, we were encouraged to think about how much we trust God in the challenging circumstances of life with this question, why do you worry? Why do you worry about what you will eat or what you will wear? And then last week, we were looking at another story where two of the disciples following the resurrection of Jesus were telling themselves the wrong story. They were believing the wrong story, and we were challenged to ensure that we're reading Scripture correctly and that we're believing the right stories about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And Jesus, as he's correcting their way of thinking of these two dear friends, Cleopas and his companion walking to the road to Emmaus, he used this question, was it not necessary for the Messiah first to suffer and then enter into his glory? I want to make an observation about all of these questions so far, or at least most of these questions so far. I want to ask this question. As you hear Jesus asking questions and teaching, who is his primary audience as he's doing this teaching. 
I want to make an observation that, yes, Jesus often teaches to large crowds, and yes, he often comes to, uh, to challenge the thinking of the religious teachers of the day, but I want to suggest to you that as we read through the gospel stories, what we see him doing mostly and what we see him doing with, most, with, with, with the most energy is focusing his teaching on these 12 men that he's chosen and the small but growing band of followers that joined them. What Jesus really wanted to do and what he was really working hard to do was to equip the followers of Jesus to pick up and carry on the mission of God in the world after his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. It's a beautiful thing about Jesus. He was really working to equip his friends, and through these questions, he is seeking to equip us also. Well, the question we come to today really is about re reorienting the thinking of two of the disciples and then in the end actually all 10, all 12, let's say the other 10 as well. The story's been read to us. Here's the question in the story. It goes like this. Are you able, Jesus says to James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Let me state this question more bluntly. If we don't perhaps catch the terminology or the metaphor of the cup and the baptism, Jesus is asking his friends, are you ready to suffer and die? The cup... In Jesus' life, the cup, when he talked about the cup most, was the time of his greatest suffering. You remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed urgently to his father and said, if there's any way for this cup to be taken from me, but not my will, but yours be done. On the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's judgment, but this cup represents the deepest suffering of Jesus in his life. What's the significance of baptism? Well, a few weeks ago, we had a baptism here, and we remember that immersion in water, going into, under the water of baptism, represents going down into death with Jesus. And coming up out of the water represents resurrection with Jesus. So let there be no mistake about it. This question that Jesus is asking James and John is a deeply challenging question. James and John... Jesus says, with some passion, we imagine, you are eager to join with me in my kingdom, but are you ready and willing to identify with me in my suffering and in my death? We need to explore this question. We need to explore how it relates to us today. But let's recall also from this text that Jesus not only asked this question, he also answered it, which he doesn't always do is answer his own questions. But he answered it and said, you will drink the cup. You will be baptized. And we can read on through the book of Acts and we can see how for these two disciples and for all of the disciples, they did suffer as they picked up the mission of Jesus in the world in many ways. And most of them died because of their faith. But what exactly is Jesus teaching his friends by means of this question? Let me put this statement on the screen and uh, just as a, as a foundation point from which to start. What I believe Jesus is doing through this question is this. Jesus is tipping upside down 
the normal human understanding of power and authority and glory and calling his friends to embrace what I would like to call a cruciform lifestyle, a cruciform life. Perhaps the word cruciform is new to you. We will explore it a little bit more as we go on, but essentially the word cruciform means in the shape of the cross. He's calling his friends to embrace a cross-shaped life which is radically different, is upside down than the way in which our normal human uh, tendency is to think about issues like power and authority and glory. As we seek to probe these ideas, let's make these observations from the story. First of all, I want to suggest in the story that what we, what we see, what we hear is an outrageous request, but also I want to suggest that same request is an understandable misunderstanding. We'll talk about that. But secondly, I want to suggest we observe in this story the supreme example of a cruciform life. We see in Jesus the supreme example of what I'm calling a cruciform life. And then we not only see an ultimate example, a supreme example, but then we also see Jesus get down to very practical teaching. And Jesus gives some very practical teaching about the upside-down nature of the cruciform life. So there's outrageous request and understandable misunderstanding. We have the supreme example of Jesus that we'll look at in the story. And then we'll, we'll hone in on his teaching on the upside-down nature of this life that's characterized and shaped by the cross. First then, let's see how these two disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, have this outrageous request, which I want to suggest is also an understandable misunderstanding. James and John are culprits in this story, and I want to suggest to you that this request seems outrageous on two fronts. First of all, this, this request seems outrageous because of the identity of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. I wonder if you might have had a similar emotional reaction to the story as you heard it read today, or perhaps as you've read it before, or as you've looked at it more closely. As I read through other parts of the New Testament, James and John are two men who command huge respect and admiration. They're part of the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Jesus took them and, and taught them, especially in, in particular circumstances. He took them with him up this mountain where he was transfigured before them. These are the ones who were later invited into the garden in that place of suffering of Jesus. John is most likely the one who is described in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Recently, the community group that we were working through through the spring months, we were doing a study in the Gospel of John, most likely written by this John, the apostle. What an amazing writer. What maturity he had. What, what a sense of the, the, the beautiful picture of the story of the life of Jesus he presents to us, not only in the Gospel of John, but in the letters of John and in the book of Revelation at the very end of our Bible. What a, what a deep thinker. What, a, what, a, what an expressive writer John is. And so I ask myself, how is it that John and his brother James could be so childish? How is it that they could act so much out of self-interest? 
in this request. And so it's the identity of James and John which make me think this is an outrageous request. But then we just need to look at their request and it's the brashness of their request that also helps us see it as an outrageous request. Listen to their language. Teacher, James and John say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I wonder if you can imagine what that was like. I wonder, you know, we kind of imagine, and you know, James and John kind of pulling Jesus away from the other ten. They don't want them to hear this. You know, we, we want to take the first place here. And who are they speaking to? Jesus is the one who has performed all of these miracles. Jesus is the one whom they're becoming convinced. He's, he is the Messiah. He is God become man who can do anything. And now they come to him and they simply say to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. I wonder if Jesus chuckled a little bit. I don't know. But it's an outrageous question. And then it carry on, carries on. Jesus says, what do you want me to do? And they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So Jesus, those other ten, make them lower than us. Make Make us right at the top there, right next to you in your glory. Give us the most authority. Give us the most power in your kingdom, Jesus. How self-serving. And I ask again, how can it be that these two men, plus the other ten, who, by the way, are just as guilty as we discover in the story, how is it that these men who are the foundation stones of a movement that would change the course of history as we read the book of Acts, how is it that they could pre be presented in such a poor way in this story? Let me answer with a couple of observations there. Many commentators point out as they look at this story and they see the way the disciples are presented here as, as self-serving and selfish, it's a raw and non-flattering presentation of these disciples in this instant. But many commentators see this as an indicator of the authenticity of the gospel accounts. If you were to make up the story of Jesus, and if you were to make up the story of the, the great heroes of the faith who supported his movement, probably you would want to, to write about the strength and the good character of these men who were going to be the, the Messiah's right-hand men, right? Well, the Bible, actually from beginning to end, doesn't hold up many heroes for us to emulate. Rather, it paints a very dramatic picture of the brokenness of humanity. And here it is again. And having even presented these men as being sometimes weak and sometimes selfish and sometimes foolish, I want to say on the second hand that it actually gives me a little bit of encouragement because sometimes I can be weak and selfish and foolish. And so if God could use such weak people as we see in this story as James and John are showing themselves to be, then God, by his grace, can also use people like me. And so we may find some encouragement there. I want to suggest, yeah, this is an outrageous request that James and John come to Jesus with, but I want to also suggest that we can see something understandable 
James and John had a serious misunderstanding about the kingdom of God. But as we look, if we try to put ourselves into the first century mindset, perhaps we can see that their misunderstanding was somehow understandable. The Jewish people, even if they didn't read their scriptures very carefully, were nonetheless looking for the Messiah to come. And when the Messiah came into the world, what was he going to do? He was going to restore the kingdom to Israel, right? That's what Messiah is going to do. And, and these disciples are growing in their confidence that, yes, this Jesus really is the Messiah who was prophesied. By his miracles and his powerful teaching, he is proving himself to be the one. And certainly Peter, James, and John, who were the closest to Jesus, were growing in this confidence. Yes, this is the Messiah from God, and their hopes are building. But what this story shows us is just how wrong they were in terms of their expectations of what would happen in the timing and the actual work that Jesus came to do. See, James and John were anxious, and we may give them the benefit of the doubt and say they were anxious to be a part of God's mission in the world. They were anxious to be alongside Jesus. They wanted to be closest to Jesus and to have the authority to carry out the mission of God in the world right alongside King Jesus. They'd heard him say some words which are actually quite remarkable. And let me put these words on the screen because they are quite remarkable. Jesus had said to them, and they're recorded in Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now there is a message I can get a hold of if I'm one of the 12 disciples, right? And so, as we observe these things, and as we try to get into the mindset of James and John, we may have some sympathy for their misunderstanding. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Excitement is building about what the Messiah was going to do in establishing his kingdom once they got to Jerusalem. Of course, from our privileged historical perspective, we may look back at this incident and we may see Jesus' words and actions in a way that James and John probably could not because they were right in the middle of it. But what we see is, in fact, they did have a serious misunderstanding of the nature and the timing of the coming of the kingdom of God. And so let's look at this story from the perspective of Jesus then, and let's see Jesus in this story, secondly, as the supreme example of what I called the cruciform life. Let's talk about this word cruciform. It's an adjective, and it simply means in the being in the shape of a cross or cross-shaped. And so we can say a cruciform life then is a, is a life that's shaped by the cross. And what I hope for us to see in this story is the intentionality with which Jesus pointed his whole life towards the cross. Michael Gorman is an American New Testament scholar who's written quite a lot on this topic of cruciformity. He's written a couple of books, I believe, on it. But he suggests that the cruciform life is a life that's characterized by, listen carefully to this, a cruciform life is characterized by letting the cross of the crucified Messiah be the shape as well as the source of life in him. It is participating in and embodying 
the cross. We'll talk a lot more in these next few moments about what that means, what that looks like, what are the specific pieces that come with what Jesus is saying. But all of this language points to the fact that Jesus really is the one who ultimately lived a cruciform life. His whole life was shaped towards what he came to do. The more we immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus, the more we see that the focus of his life was the cross. In fact, it was the cross and resurrection that set Jesus apart from any other religious teacher in the history of the world. We need to pay attention to that. Many other people have come and have taught well. Many other people have come and have been good philosophers and good thinkers. But Jesus is the only one whose life was focused towards suffering and dying. And if we look for it, we can see throughout the story of the Gospels, we can see that his whole life on earth was shaped by the cross because the cross really ultimately was the reason for which he came. His purpose in coming into the world was to suffer and to die so that we humans who are under the sentence of death because of our sin, so that we humans might have the opportunity to believe and receive the gift of life. He came to die to give us life. That's what he came for. He came to die. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, he said, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, in other words, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. Let's look at some of his actions in this story. In the opening part of our scripture reading today, we read these words from verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. It goes like this, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Just try to put yourself in this story. Pretend, imagine that you're on the road here with Jesus. The, the crowd has grown larger. The crowd is mixed. The 12 are there. There's others there who are pretty convinced that he is the Messiah. There's others there who don't really know what's going on, but they're amazed at what this Jesus is doing. What is Jesus doing? He's going up to Jerusalem. And what's he doing? Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus is leading this crowd toward Jerusalem. The gospel writers actually make much of the fact that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Dr. Luke, in his account of the story of Jesus in Luke 9.52, says that Jesus set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. Or like some of the older translations say, he set his face like a flint, a steely face. He was going to Jerusalem. And look at the emotions in the crowd. And they were amazed. It says, who's they? I think that is referring to the 12, the disciples of Jesus. They were amazed. Another, word, another translation uses the word astonished. And those who followed were afraid. Why such emotion on this trip to Jerusalem? What's the big deal? Well, Jerusalem 
is the place of power and authority. Jerusalem is the place where Rome is now governing, governing the whole land. And the Messiah, certainly in those disciples who were closer to Jesus, the Messiah in the people's minds is to be the true and rightful king of the Jews. The Messiah is the one who's coming to restore the kingdom to Israel. And so surely there will be conflict when they arrive in Jerusalem. Surely there will be much bloodshed when they arrive in Jerusalem as Jesus the king sets up his kingdom and throws out the Roman governors and takes his rightful place on the throne. This is what's in their imagination. Only Jesus knows that the only blood to be shed actually in Jerusalem would be his own. Listen to his words to the disciples. Verse 32 to 34. He was taking the 12 again. And please note, taking the 12 means Jesus is paying special attention to these dear friends. He's equipping them. He's, he's, he's changing their thinking. He's helping them to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. Taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him in Jerusalem, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be seated on a glorious throne and wipe out all the Romans. It's not what it says, right? The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. As you look at these words, please notice two things with me. Please notice the intentionality of Jesus as he says these words. Jesus knew exactly what his mission on earth was. It wasn't what was in the minds of James and John about thrones and overthrowing Romans. Jesus is modeling for us here in words and in actions the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. The way up is down. The way to defeat death is to die. The way to abolish suffering is to enter into it, identify with it. The way to gain life is to lose it. Jesus is very intentional, not just with words, but also with his actions. And so here we see him setting his face resolutely toward Jerusalem, the place of agony and suffering and separation from God and death. This was the shape of Jesus' life. A second thing I want to observe as we look at these words here is the selective hearing of the disciples. This is now the third time that Jesus had repeated a very similar announcement of the coming crisis in Jerusalem. You can read the other two, Mark 8 and 9, and also in the other Gospels. But the disciples don't get it. They don't understand. What is this story of suffering and death? We don't understand. But can we blame them? Can we blame them? If we were in their shoes, wouldn't we also have struggled to really grasp what this is all about? We have this amazing uh, privilege of historical perspective. It's so much easier, we can see, for John and James to imagine sitting on thrones beside Jesus and ruling with him than to imagine Jesus suffering and dying. 
And please come with me to the end of the passage that was read to us, where we discover that the selective hearing of the disciples was not just in these words, but the selective hearing was also to do with the Old Testament story, the prophecies about the Messiah and, whom he w- and who he would be. Jesus actually quotes from the prophet Isaiah here when he says these words, for the Son of Man, in verse 45, for this, even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These concepts are exactly out of the prophet Isaiah. Listen to the words of Isaiah, slightly different words, but exactly the same idea. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. If we look back through the whole middle section of the Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 40 to chapter 55, there's so much spoken there through the prophet Isaiah about the servant of God who would suffer, the servant who would come, and would suffer. But somehow, these first century Jewish people, as they were looking for their Messiah, they they couldn't understand that suffering piece. What what did it mean? I believe, again, it's a case of selective hearing. Who's not guilty of that, right? James and John, in our specific story here, had visions in their heads of sitting on thrones beside Jesus and ruling with authority, in particular being higher and more powerful than the other ten disciples. And Jesus, through this very direct question, is challenging their complete misunderstanding of the nature of God's kingdom. And he's awakening in them a whole new set of values which would help them as they carried on the mission after Jesus left, as we read it in the book of Acts. A whole new set of values that said the way up is down. The way to greatness is through self-sacrificing love and serving others. And so he says, are you able? Are you able to suffer and die? Are you able to drink the cup? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? So we've seen this outrageous request kind of an understandable misunderstanding. We've seen something, a very small picture of the supreme example of Jesus as an example of the cruciform life, a life shaped, directed to, centered in the cross. Let's now turn to Jesus' very specific teachings to his disciples. What does a cruciform life look like? And Jesus has some very specific words. It's really the upside down nature of the cruciform life. This is where it gets very specific and practical, personal for us, I believe. By now, of course, as we read the story, the other ten disciples have heard about this outrageous request from James and John. They've heard that they're trying to weasel their way into the positions of power in the kingdom, and they are indignant. Just in the chapter before, you can see that all of them were arguing together about who was greatest in the kingdom of God. Right? All of them showed this propensity towards self-serving. Jesus has to correct this thinking, and he does it dramatically with this question. He sits them all down for this lesson. And I want to be sure that we catch the key word in this lesson that Jesus gives. And so we read in verses 42 and 43, and Jesus called them, that's all the 12 disciples, these dear friends. He's equipping them. He's calling them to him, and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, what do they do? They lord it 
over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Please listen with me carefully. I believe that there's something very significant about this word authority here that relates to what it means to live a cruciform life. Earlier, we suggested in this story, Jesus' primary teaching point is to turn upside down the usual human understanding of power, authority, glory. You see, James and John eagerly wanted to participate in the mission of Jesus in the world, but they want to do it in a world-like way where strong people hold power over weak people. And Jesus here by his dramatic question, is reorienting their thinking and their values. A couple of years ago, when Martha and I were serving at the International Church in Central Asia, we did a study in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is a very long gospel, and there's so much richness in it, but we followed a thread through the writing of Luke, and we followed in particular this word, authority. Exousia is the word in Greek, and it's, it's a word which, which is very, very powerful and poignant in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, especially as we look at it in the hands of Jesus. Jesus is presented to us as God become human. He is the creator of everything that exists, and therefore, he possesses infinite authority, right? Jesus is the king of the universe, the creator of everything that exists, He holds ultimate authority in his hands. The question is, how does he use it? And when Jesus comes into the world, as Luke describes it, if you follow the thread through, Jesus uses his authority to do things like forgive sins. Right? Don't you know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He uses it to heal the sick. He uses it to drive out demons. He uses it to perform signs which point to the beautiful purposes of God on earth. And he uses it to confront religious leaders that have a totally wrong picture of God and his kingdom. But how does he not use his authority? Jesus does not use his authority to defend himself, to rescue himself from suffering, or to put himself forward. Remember what we have already noticed about the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate picture of selflessness. It's the ultimate picture of one who holds all authority in his hand, and yet he lays it aside because of his love for you and me. This is the nature of authority in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus goes on very pointedly to say this in verses 43 and 44. says this, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This, I believe, is Jesus calling us to live a cross-shaped life, a cruciform life, a life characterized by this, my friends, by self-sacrificing love. This is the life that Jesus lived. This is the life that Jesus calls us to as we are on mission with him in this broken world. And just like Jesus, we all have authority in different areas of life. Perhaps you're a boss at work. You have authority over your employees. Perhaps you're a leader in your home. You have authority in your home. 
Perhaps you're a leader in the community in some way. You have authority there. The question, I believe, is not whether or not we have authority, but it's how are we using it? For whose purposes are we using it? Are we using it to push ourselves forward at the expense of others to protect our reputation? I believe that this challenging question comes to us. Jesus, as he said to his friends who wanted the top spot, this is what he said to them, are you able to drink the cup? Are you able to suffer? Are you able to die with me, to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Are you willing to radically identify with Jesus in his suffering and death? Are you truly ready to live day by day a cross-shaped life marked by self-sacrifice, a life that is radically others-centered? Are you willing to set aside personal gains so that others might prosper in the kingdom of God? I mentioned to you previously that this is the third time that Jesus has tried to explain what's going to happen in Jerusalem, right? He keeps talking about it, and the disciples don't really understand it even till it's over. But three times already, this is now the third time that Jesus has, has spoken about the suffering that he was going to endure when they landed in Jerusalem. Just after the first incident, back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus makes a very strong call to his disciples, which I believe is very closely related to this idea of a cruciform life. Listen carefully to the words, calling the crowds to him, Mark 8, 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him do what? Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would lo loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Deny yourself. Lose your life. These phrases, I believe, help us to capture the heart of what it means to live a cross-shaped life. Let me pick up one more quote from the writing of Michael Gorman. He suggests this. Listen carefully. Cruciform love resists the temptation to make myself the focus of everything. Let me read that again. Cruciform love resists the temptation to make myself the focus of everything, even my spirituality. Cruciform love refuses to exercise rights, powers, privilege, spiritual gifts, and so forth if their use will do me good, but someone else harm. It liberates me from myself and for the other. To be human in the way in which God created us, I believe, is to be radically others-centered. I want to invite us all to pause for a moment. I want to invite us all to invite the Holy Spirit of God to shine the light of this story that we've been looking at today into our own lives. Can we do that? Invite the Holy Spirit just to teach you, examine what's going on in your life right now. Jesus calls us to be ready to suffer and even to die to be radically identified with his self-sacrificing love. I know that many of us in our community here are going through times of suffering. 
And while this call to live a crucified life is a, is a challenge, I also hope and pray that you will find it a comfort for your soul. I hope you will realize that as Jesus embraced suffering that he identifies with, he went through the suffering that you may be going through, and he wants to be alongside of you. He came to be with you in times of suffering. But let's think about this idea of being self-giving, self-sacrificing. And so think specifically about the nature of your relationships with people around you, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors. And could it be said that your life is cross-shaped as you relate with these people who are around you? Is it characterized by self-sacrificing love? Or is it perhaps that some self-interest, some selfishness has crept in? And maybe the Holy Spirit of God is challenging you to bring that to Jesus and to confess it to him. Can you bring that to him now? As we come to a close in our service, I would like us to, um, I, was, I would like to close with two hymns. And this is a good time for the music team to come back to the front. But the two hymns, the first hymn that we're going to do together, we're actually going to read. We're not going to sing it because uh, perhaps somebody's put a tune to it, but I don't know what it is. This is a hymn written by the Apostle Paul, and it's sometimes called the Christ hymn. It's in Philippians chapter 2. And as we read it together, I want to really call us to be attentive to the words. Just don't, it, it's quite familiar, but don't let the familiarity take away the meaning of the words, okay? As we read it, I believe it's a hymn which really calls us to, to a cruciform life. It calls us to pay attention to the example of Jesus, the ultimate one whose life was cross-shaped, and for us to join in with him. It's a very, very powerful hymn that, that uh, the Apostle Paul writes. And here's how I'd like us to do it. I'd like us to do it responsively. So on the screen in a moment, you'll see some white letters. Those are for me to read. And you'll see some yellow letters. Those are for all of us to read together. Okay, so we'll do a responsive reading through Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 3. And uh, let me invite you to stand. The words will be on the big screen behind us. Think about this question. Are you able to drink the cup? And be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Are you able to suffer with me, to identify with my suffering, to identify with my self-giving love? That's what these words are calling us to. And these words also celebrate the beauty of Jesus, who sets the ultimate and supreme example for us. So again, I'll say the words that are in white. Please join me as we get to the words that are in yellow. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. 
We say together, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.